Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywa podcast. In this episode, we present part two of Karen Selk's lecture, Reel and Weave, The Silk Spinner's Story. The lecture was recorded live as part of the 2007 Maywa Textile Symposium. In part two, Karen describes her experience in Laos and describes how weaving traditions are an essential part of Laotian culture. Karen Selk has been a textile designer and artist since 1972. Her primary focus has been weaving and fusing felt with silk. In addition to writing, photography, research, and textile arts, Karen runs Trinway Silks from her Salt Spring Island home. And we're just leaving China, and we're on our way to Laos. And Laos is a very interesting country. It's landlocked which means that um, it's, it's relatively poor. Any country who doesn't have a way to export and import has to rely on its neighbors, and, of course, that means more charges, um, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see there's Vietnam um, to the east, and there's a mountain range called the Annamite Mountains that is the border between Vietnam and Laos. The Mekong River is the border between Thailand and Laos and also uh, part of Cambodia down there. China is to uh, the north and um, a little bit, it touches on uh, a little bit of Burma as well. So that puts it into context for you. All the different colors that you see on the map of Laos are different provinces, and different provinces work differently with their cloth. Now, I find Laos uh, an amazing country because for well over 200 years, they've been somebody else's uh, football. Thailand was in Laos. The French were in Laos. The U.S. was in Laos. Laos was just everybody else's uh, stomping ground for so long. And as you know, uh, they called it the uh, domino theory during the Vietnam War. If they felt, if Laos felt, you know, everything was going to go to hell in a handbasket. So Laos was not involved in the war at all, but um, it was the most heavily bombed country uh, during the war because the pilots had to have some place to drop their bombs before they landed their their planes, and all of that happened in Laos. So after the Vietnam War was the first time that Laos had control of its own, its own institutions and systems for many, many years. So when everybody pulled out after the war, they had to sort of learn how to run a postal system and a school system and all the things that we take for granted. So it's amazing that they're um, so lovely and calm, and I think it's their combination of Buddhist and animist religion. that And, and living along the Mekong River, it really is their lifeline. Goods coming in and out of the country it's where they get their fertile land to uh, do all of their raising of their vegetables. When the river goes down, when the river is raging, um, they don't have uh, their vegetables along the banks, but it's really rich delta land. And there's new temples and old temples. Uh, uh, some are Buddhist, some are animists. They worship the spirit gods, whether it be the spirits that will give you good grades or the spirits of the fields or the spirits that will help you through um, your pregnancy or an exam that's coming up. Um, and so they believe that it's really a good plan 
to have all bases covered. And you can see what happened during the war. Many of the, the Buddhist statues are in a Buddhist statue hospital. We, see, we saw quite a few hospitals, as I call them, when we went to temples. Uh, there's a little place in the background where they're restoring Buddhas. And they used to have semi-precious stones in them, so uh, all of those came out during the war, and many have broken limbs and whatnot. Early morning, uh, getting up and watching the monks get alms is uh, just a very moving, uh, lovely experience. People are out on the streets with rice and any food that they've made for the monks, and they fill the monks' bowls as they travel the streets at 5 in the morning. So you can see the military in Laos are really laid back. It's it's an amazingly laid back, uh, gentle, relaxed country. And the monks are exactly the same, as you can see. They want to chat. They want to find out where you're from. They want to find out what you do. It's not at all like that with their neighbor in Thailand. The the monks would come up to us and touch our cloth and talk to us and chatter away. And in Thailand, it's the same kind of Buddhism, but they're just not nearly as relaxed. I was in a village by myself and waiting for the bus, and the bus came, and there was only one seat left, and it was next to a monk. Well, a woman is never supposed to touch a monk in Thailand. So I sat there, and I looked in the bus, and the bus driver looked at me, and the monk looked at me, and everyone looked around, and finally some guy got out and let me in his seat so he could sit next to the monk. But Laos is nothing like that at all. And uh, I think that, uh, as I said before, it's the religion and the landscape and the lifestyle have a whole lot to do with what one's textiles look like. This is in uh, the old capital, Luampabang, and Laos is uh, part of uh, Indochina, and so it has a huge French influence still. The coffee, the baguette, the chocolate, it's all fabulous. It's really, really good. Um, These are the silkworms. Now we're going to see what the silkworms look like. And this is the size of the mulberry leaves uh, at this particular uh, village in Laos. We... We're going to visit a family in Laos, Kantong and her sister Vien Kham and uh, their mom, who is no longer with us. And they're an amazing family. This is what they do for the silkworms in Laos where they live. They have baskets and they fill them with the mulberry leaves. And a silkworm has no way of drinking liquid. The only way it takes liquid into its body is through fresh leaves. And so they have to be fed at least eight times a day. As soon as the leaves start to dry out, they stop to eat. And because it's an agricultural product, um, the silk won't be as good. So you have to feed them all the time so that they have liquid and they're happy to continue eating. And then she puts it in those little trays. It has a screen on it so that the flies and the wasps can't get in. The caterpillars are ready to start spinning. And this is what she's providing for them to do their spinning in. This is the little condos that they provide in Laos. Every country has their own little types of condos. These are made out of bamboo. And this fellow is just making, you know, he's stripping down the bamboo and doing all the folding of the silkworm cages. Now, because they are a Buddhist country, they let the moth break out of the cocoon, which means the cocoons all have holes in them. And so their way of reeling is very different than the factory that we saw in China. 
this Kantong's mom has her little charcoal and sometimes wood burning uh, in that little concrete thing. Then she has her pot, and on top of the pot, she has her little reeling apparatus, which is made out of bamboo. And you can see um, on her little reeling apparatus, there is a reel. The photograph on the left-hand side, she has a piece of bamboo, which has a slit in it. So she can grab a bunch of strand of silk out of the pot, put it through that slit in the bamboo, so that she can keep punching the cocoons down into the warm water and keep the sarazen soft. Then you can see the strand she's got going through a hole and then around that little wheel. And what she does, she just piles up this thread as she unravels it into what looks like an amazing uh, messy pile. So there she is just unraveling the cocoons, very different than factory situation, and it comes in lumps and bumps. And then she just unravels it and puts it into this basket. This is where your little heart goes pitter-patter. How are we ever going to get that worked out? Well, it's amazing. In Laos, they use pebbles. They throw pebbles on top of that basket of mess. In India, they use sand, and it keeps a weight on it so that as you're unraveling it, it just comes up the same way that it went down. Brilliant, isn't it? But, boy, I see threads like that, and I'm never sure I'll get myself organized. They're not doing the textile festivals as often anymore, but in uh, 98, they started doing the Lao textile festivals, which is like having a weaver's conference or a quilter's conference or a knitter's conference. And um, they invited me to speak at a number of them. I spoke in 98, and I spoke uh, in 2000. 98 was the first one. We had a fashion show with traditional costumes from all the different provinces, and they, they still wear their skirts and their traditional costumes. And there were a number of um, designers there, designers from Europe, designers from Laos. What, and this is what they're doing with, with the cloth that they're making, with their traditional cloth. Now, at the conference, different provinces had their own booths, and you could see their style of weaving and what they were working with. Some worked with cotton, some with silk. The majority actually um, worked with silk. And I have to tell you a story about the Lao weavers. During the war, they're extremely good weavers. And um, they pass their natural dye recipes down from mother to daughter. They pass their weaving uh, symbols and designs from mother to daughter. So it's a real personal family thing. And during the war, you could see what was happening with the uh, Buddhas, and it also was happening with cloth and anything else that marauders could get their hands on. And the Laotians um, value their textiles so much. That's how women are chosen um, as wives. It has to do with their textile ability, their weaving ability, dyeing ability. They would take their textiles and roll them up and put them in glass jars and bury them in the earth. And they started unburying in the late 80s as things kind of settled down. So I just, I, I love that they did that with their textiles. Uh, these women were from a northern province, and uh, they made the fringe on their shawls so quickly. I sat down, and they taught me how to hike up my skirt and do my fringe as fast as they did. This is the family I wanted to introduce you to. Kantong is in the red. Her sister, Vien Kham, is a designer. She's in the brown, and that's uh, Kantong and Vien Kham's mom. 
She is um, an inspiration to me. Her husband was killed during the war, and she had three children, and she was pregnant with Vien Kham, and she was up in the Northeast and didn't know how she was going to keep her family alive. The only thing she knew how to do was weave. So she moved down to the capital city, uh, Vientiane, and she started to weave. And she supported, not only did she support her four children, they all went to university. And the son uh, who moved to San Diego came back. The daughters really appreciated what their mom had done and realized how important the traditional Lao weaving was and worked with their mom to set up a workshop, a workshop where they train women from the villages in better dye techniques and weaving techniques. They help them with materials. They go home, they weave, they market for them, and the women don't have to pay for their materials until they come back and their things are in market. The type of weaving that they do is a supplementary weft. For those of you that are not weavers in the audience, the warp is stationary on the loom, and the weft goes from weft to right. One of my students gave me that little clue once. She said, it took her, she just couldn't get those terms right. She said, oh, Karen, I finally have it. The weft goes from weft to right. I said, I'll use that. Thank you. So all of this is laid in by hand. We'll have a little look at it all the equipment that they use. Old bicycle wheels are used a lot throughout Southeast Asia, India, China. They're used for many, many things. And I took a workshop with, uh, at Peng Mai Gallery with young girls that were there that had come in uh, they, to be apprentices. They helped all of us foreigners with our class. And uh, we did our designs, but we looked at old textiles, and then we graphed out designs on the graph paper. And then we started picking everything up by hand. That's, that's what you do. Now, you, patterns, as you will see, are always reversible. You go to a halfway point, and then it reverses. And uh, so you've got a, a triangle pointing upward, and then the next time it's pointing downward. So now my little guardian angel, as we call them, I could not believe her. I uh, would be picking up. And she was on the other side of the room. I could barely see her, and I'd hear her go, oh, and I thought, oh, no, I've made an error. <laughs> she came running. She'd take my stick and pull it out, and all over I go again. And they kept saying, oh, you're such a fast weaver for being a foreigner. It was a very lovely, humbling experience. <laughs> it's just plain weave, and the rest is picked up by hand. And this is how it looks at the back of their looms. They have these really long-eyed heddle-type things. And when you look at the photograph on the right-hand side, you can actually see a bit of a pattern in all of those threads, right? So after we laboriously go all the way across picking up our threads, then we take a string, and we put a string. After we pick up all of those threads, there's a great big sword, which you can see. We call it a weaving sword, but it's that piece of wood that's uh, turned and is standing upright there. That gets put in uh, where we picked up all those threads, gets turned on side, and it makes an opening. And the opening in those warp threads in weaver talk is called a shed. So when we have that shed 
formed from all that picking up by hand, then we put in one of those strings, and that holds our place. So it's going to forever hold our place on this weaving that we're doing. And at the top of the loom there, you can see these two sticks coming down and all those strings floating around up there. Out of those sticks are coming nails. So we take our string up there, we hook it on the nails, and we weave our weft across, and then we're in there with our stick again, picking up, picking up. And after we pick up, then we take a thread to the top, and it's, it's very labor-intensive, but their fabrics are just absolutely stunning, beautiful silk fabrics. Now, that's the majority of what they do. It's called supplementary weft, but they do some tapestry work, and they do some ECAT work. This is all vegetable-dyed fabric. The one on the left, um, I don't take out. Uh, it's a very old piece. It's about 200 years old. And um, I bought that when I went to Laos uh, in the 80s. Uh, you don't find cloth like that much anymore. It's all vegetable. Isn't it stunning? It's just a beautiful piece. And I hope to return it to Laos one day when they get uh, a proper uh, museum. The piece on the right-hand side is uh, indigo and lac their uh, red dye, and it's an older skirt piece as well. Their skirts are called Sins. This lovely lady, uh, we went to visit her because we heard she was a master weaver, and she came out to greet us. And then when she found out we were weavers as well, she disappeared. So we thought she was going to make a cup of tea because that's sort of the thing that one does. And when she came back, she was all dressed up in her fine as she wanted to honor us as fellow weavers. We were just so touched. One of the monasteries is all mosaic. The whole outside of the monastery is this sort of pink-colored clay and all this glass mosaic. And the glass mosaic work is all scenes of village life, whether they're gathering rice or they're um, taking the cows in. And this is the inside of what the temples look like. They're lovely and gaudy. They're great. And that's mosaic on the inside of the temple, too. And you can see <clears throat> it didn't really fade uh, like the outside does. And they do, we talked about the different provinces. So there's backstrap weaving. There's weaving on looms that you sit at. There's pickup. There's all different types of weavings that they do. Fun things happen when you travel. When we... One of the women that used to work with us, Sophie, is French-Canadian. And after she left us, she and her husband went to live in Laos for a couple of years. Sophie is a writer, and she worked for the French newspaper in Vientiane, the capital city. Well, when we went on one of our particular trips, we were very excited to be able to travel together. And we traveled up to Luampabang, the old capital. And Sophie said, oh, I've got to do this story about a baby tiger. And I said, what? She said, well, she doesn't like cats much. She said, well, there's this baby tiger. Apparently the mother got killed, and it's at this old house somewhere, and they want me to do a story about it. So we asked questions and asked questions and asked questions. And finally, yes, we found out where this baby tiger was at Mum. Its mom had been poached. They found her paws and other things being sold in the market. And they found the fellow who did it and said it was the time of year when they had babies and said, 
did this mom have babies? And he said, yes, there were two. And so he led them to where the babies were. The little boy had died, but this is the little girl. Her name is Diamond. And she nearly died too. Uh, I guess about two weeks before we got there, she was totally bald. They couldn't figure out what to uh, do to keep her alive. And um, it was their uh, cousins in Thailand who said, you've got to feed them tiger's milk. That's the only thing that'll keep them alive for the first whatever it is, three months or so. And so Thailand came through with some tiger's milk. Now, I wouldn't have want to have been the person that did that. I, I don't know about you. So we found the place where she was, and uh, Laos is extremely poor. They have it classified as one of the poorest countries um, countries in the world, but you can see style-wise, food-wise, everything. They have so much style. You don't feel like you're in one of the poorest countries of the, of the world. But this little uh, girl was what looked like a house, and they don't really have a, a government organization that can deal with natural resources and things like that. So Sophie went walking down, and she didn't see anything, and I went walking after, and this little kitten came running out toward us. Well, Sophie turned around and ran the other way, and I sat down, and it crawled up in my lap, and it purred, and it took its paw and went on my face. It was... You know, you watch National Geographic-type programs, and you think, oh, I just love to do that. Well, I got to, and, you know, I will never forget it as long as I live. It was just one of those really very, very special experiences. So Laos is just, um, Laos is also very, very close to my heart. It's totally different than um, than China, as you saw. It's a much warmer country in feeling. It's a more spiritual country. It's a much calmer country. And uh, textiles are an extremely important part of, uh, of their lifestyle. You've been listening to part two of Reel and Weave, the Silk Spinner's Story. The lecture was recorded live at the Vancouver Museum as part of the 2007 Mewa Textile Symposium. Part three, the final episode, will follow Karen Selk to India, where she will describe the double silk ecat produced by the Selvi community, and also the tawny golden silk made by the huge Tussamoth. For more information about Mewa podcasts, please visit our website at www.mewa.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>